everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with the Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion intersects with the world's deep needs. Today on the podcast, I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Timothy C. Tennant, president of Asbury Theological Seminary. We talked about his new book that releases on October 27th called For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body. We talk about what it means to have a theology of the body, the building blocks that make up our theology of the body, like marriage, family, singleness, friendships, things like that what it means to be made in the image of God, and how we can live lives that represent Christ in the communities in which we live. Let's listen. I really appreciate you taking the the time to talk to me today. Sure, Heidi. I'm looking forward to it. I talked to Donna earlier this week, so you're our second return guest on the podcast, so that's really exciting too. Well, thank you. I enjoyed our last time and It'd be good to have this time as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that just on the kind of grassroots level, the student body, uh, you're like a uh, rock star, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but... (laughs) You're the new face of Esme Seminary. I'm just kind of in the background, but you're up. (laughs) No, no. It is funny, though, because I see people in the cafeteria when I used to go to the cafeteria um, before all this happened, but... And I, even then, I didn't go very much because I brought my lunch. But when I would go, sometimes I would see people and they're like, oh, hey, hi, Heidi. And I'm like, I don't know you at <laughs> all. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. Dr. Tenna, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you today. And we're going to be talking a lot about your new book, For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and and the human body that comes out on October 27th. So if if we could just start off and talk a little bit about your book and why did you write for the body? Well, thank you, Heidi. It's great to be back on the podcast. And um, I wrote this book really for two main reasons. Uh, first of all, I felt like it was really important to lay out a positive case for the um, historic Christian view regarding things like human sexuality and embodiment, et cetera. And as you well know, and all of your viewers uh, will know, that you know, the church experienced a lot of pressure in uh, recent decades to revise our sexual ethics. And we've had a particularly a lot of focus in the last uh, period of time on same-sex marriage and gender reassignment. And, and the church, of course, has you know, tried best it could to respond to that. But I think from my perspective, it seems like that We've mostly been able to talk about what we're against, and uh, we haven't really been able to think well about what we're for. And I think just in terms of my experience with people, if you tell somebody five times you're against something, you know, you become either at least, you know, annoying, if not, you know, just (laughs) what is your, uh, what is your, you know, how do you relate to real people, real experiences and struggles, et cetera. And so I think it was a real need to lay out the positive vision. What are Christians for? What is the grand vision? So that was a big kind of undergirding uh, dynamic of the book. And then secondly, this is more of a theological concern, but I think the church um, is, is experiencing a re-encounter um, with a very ancient problem the church had in the first several centuries of Gnosticism, which was a devaluing of the body. Mm. So I think that part of this is trying to respond to that trend. And I I looked out over all the things that we've 
been looking at in recent years, uh, not just these issues, but things like the rise of pornography use, the, um, you know, the explosion of first-person violent video games, um, you know, doctor-assisted suicide issues, people changing their genders, just how bodies are portrayed in media and on billboards and in film, et cetera. And I just felt like that we, we probably felt like we were fighting like 12 you know, problems rather than really one central problem, which is our theology of the body and our view of the body. So this was trying to focus the church on what is really an important theological recovery that's, that's essential for us to deal with a lot of things that are happening across the cultural landscape. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So what is um, some of the things that you mention in your book that the church is for? Because I think that's important to establish that groundwork as we move forward in our conversation. Well, what I what I do in the book, I, um, I don't know if you know the history of the theology of the body, but back in the 80s, uh, Pope John Paul II uh, put out a tremendous volume on the theology of the body. And the Roman Catholics have been doing some great work in this area for, for decades. And the Protestants have really lagged behind. If you talk to the average Christian, say, what's your theology of the body? They don't know what you're even talking about. Right. Yeah. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation because yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to, we'll put a pin in that. I want to know what, I mean, I've read your book, but not everybody listening has. So I'm going to follow that up with a question in just a minute, but please go ahead. So, yeah. So I just thought, okay, what, what, are, what is the, what are the components of it? And so, and looking at the books out there on it, mostly, again, Roman Catholic books, they're all wonderful. I love the books. Christopher West has done some tremendous work. But I felt like none of those books really laid out systematically what are the building blocks of a theology of the body. So I laid out in the book, uh, as you know, but seven uh, key building blocks or components to a theology of the body. So it starts out with you know, reestablishing that, that God's creation is good. Uh, just the role of our bodies, secondly, and how our bodies are meant to be pointers that when God created us, he was already anticipating that he himself would come into the world bodily in the incarnation. And our bodies are meant to to point to, I, I use the word icon, it's a, a mysterious pointing to uh, the incarnation and our own bodily resurrection, etc. I also developed the whole theme of marriage and, and how marriage is supposed to be a a, a, a mysterious pointer to Christ in the church. You know, that famous text where Paul discusses marriage in Ephesians 5, he ends it not by saying this is the mystery of Christian marriage, but the mystery of Christ in the church. And so we're learning that our bodies are actually meant to point to things. And so I developed that one. And then fourthly, I developed a lot of the, the role of childbearing, which, of course, as you know, has been um, really decreasing in Christian circles and in the world in general. And so you know why? Why? Why is the gift of uh, childbearing important? Why do we? The families reflect the Trinity, and the the role of com- becoming a co-creator with God in uh, in the bearing of children, etc. And then I develop a lot on, on singleness and friendship. The loss of friendship is a big concern of mine. So we talk about the role of same gender friendships. You know, and it goes on from there. But I d- deal with the whole way the body is kind of a mysterious sacrament that uh, it's on mission in the world and all the ways God uses our bodies as the conveyors of all the means of grace. So anyway, essentially the book lays out these seven components for a a proper kind of positive vision for the body for, and it all is drawn on just very basic Christian theology and what we often have, have either neglected or just failed to see put together because we often don't realize how much I I say in the book that our bodies are talking to us. You know, we have not listened Mm -hmm. to the bodies. We've not, we scrambled the message of the body. So 
is trying to recapture uh, why God put us in bodies. Mm, Yeah, I like that. One of the things that you mentioned in your book, and I'm going to quote you, you said, we must first embrace people as image bearers, and only after we do that can we address other issues that distance people from the will of God. So what does it mean that we're all made in the image of God? Well, Heidi, that's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think, um, you know, the, the Bible never actually defines the image of God. It's so interesting. And it also, it's only found in the book of Genesis. And it on the last, um, you know, Genesis 9, 6 is actually the last time that the, the phrase image of God is used in the whole Old Testament. And then you go into a long, you know, obviously just books and books on false images and idols and all of that. And the image of God uh, theology just kind of explodes back into the New Testament uh, with the image of, of God in Christ. And it's just everywhere. It's Colossians, you know, 1.15, Hebrews 1.3, Romans 8.29, mm-hmm. Corinthians 4.4, 4, et cetera. So you have this massive. So uh, looking through the lens of the New Testament back in the Old Testament, uh, we really see it. Uh, the image of God probably involves multiple components. There's no one thing that defines it, but certainly it involves our uh, sharing in his dominion, that we are actually meant to share in God's rule and reign in the world, that a part of it is connected to our reproducibility, that ability for us to be co-creators with God in the bearing of children is connected to our being representatives of God in the world. Uh, we, we're like his ambassadors in the world uh, bodily. That's part of our imaging of him and also, just fundamentally, that we have the capacity to enter into relationship with God and with one another that is not been given to the animals in the way that it's been given to us. So it's actually a mystery, uh, one of the great mysteries of the Bible, exactly what is meant by it. But we know that part of the ministry of Christ is to rest- fully restore the image of God in us. And we do know, and as I said in the book, and as your quote reflected, it was is part of the um, what, it, what we have to recover in order to really interact with one another well, because it's something shared by all people, not just Christians, but all of us are bearers of God's image and have his stamp upon us. Yes, yes, for sure. I guess, what does it mean if we, what changes, I guess, would would happen if we started viewing each other as made in the image of God? I know. It would just be wonderful, wouldn't it? I mean, I think the, yes. the, the kind of objectification of people is a huge part in and of course, today's political discourse, we treat people as, as you know, objects and positions rather than as people. And so it has a lot of degrading influence on culture if you lose that. And um, I draw upon the work of you know, a number of writers, but in particular Alistair McIntyre, who, who writes that we've now come to a place what he calls emotivism, where we, we no longer actually can talk to one another. We simply shout at each other. You know, we lose the capacity to see one another as image bearers, and therefore we aren't able to really talk together well. So our culture has lost the ability to relate to one another well. I think we all recognize that. So mm-hmm. part of that is the loss of the the imago Dei or the image of God that we see in one another and recognize God's imprint on all, all of humanity. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and you say in your book, the church is sometimes known more for what it is against rather than what it is for. And at times, Christians and the church 
have it's been argued that they have been and they I think it's true that they have maybe been hateful and unwelcoming to those who are in the LGBTQ community, making them feel less than and not valued as people made in the image of God. So how can the church and the church is made up as a person? So I guess it's not just the body, because sometimes I feel like when we say the church, then at least for me, I feel like, oh, it gives me a pass because I'm part of the church, but it's other people that need to do something. So how can we better engage those who are in the LGBTQ community? Well, the the church, of course, has always struggled with how to present the, the gospel. We do know the gospel is good news for everyone. And the church, you know, reflecting of its highest calling, the church has always embraced uh, two twin truths simultaneously, and we have to always remember both of these. And, and the first is what I call the the universal call. You know, the gospel is good news for everyone. Uh, we mm-hmm. Everyone's an object of God's love. We embrace everyone. So you have, for example, that great text in Isaiah, you know, come all who are thirsty, come without money, buy and, and eat, you know. And, of course, Jesus picks up on that in John 7 with his— um, you know, the living water, the calling, the, the universal call to all people to come and, and, and come to Him. So, on the one hand, I think we do have to remember the universal call, but also we have to remember the the call to radical transformation. The gospel does call us to to uh, repent, come under His lordship, and come under the what it means to be members in the, of the kingdom of God. So, I think the the challenge has been uh, for the church. I think that we haven't always held both those things together well. And sometimes mm-hmm. we, we uh, the universal call ends up being kind of like a flattening out, and we just think we're called to embrace everyone right where they are without any call to transformation, or we we insist on the transformation before they can engage us, and so therefore we we don't properly engage them. So part of it is um, capturing both both sides. Of that. I think the best, probably the best example that brings them all together is Jesus' parable of the um, of the lost sons, where you know, the, the, the son comes home, the younger son comes home, and he receives this amazing embrace. I mean, the father literally runs to meet him and embrace him. It's one of the most emotional moments in the, in the Bible. And, you know, in the in ancient world, uh, Jewish men were told not to ever run. It was considered disgraceful to run. So here's this father, in this, you know, in a sense, entering into his own shame by running out but he's just so lost in, in, in his uh, love for his son, and he embraces his son. But then he, he clothes him. He transforms him. And you have the image of the, the clothing, the sandals, you know, the, the, uh, the, the signet ring, all of that is an example of the transformation. So, so Jesus really embodies the best of this. And I, I think the Wesleyan worldview, which does believe in provenient grace, that God's grace extends to everyone as part of, you know, what has to be recaptured and remembered uh, as we connect with any community, um, not just people in the LGBTQ, but throughout the, the whole culture, we need to embody both of those truths. Mm-hmm, definitely. So this question was not on the list of ones that I sent you, so you can totally tell me if you don't want to answer it. But I was listening to a podcast over the weekend, and it was it was from um, a different viewpoint, but I was trying to learn more about other viewpoints to prepare for this podcast. And the person on the podcast was saying that when we say love the sin, uh, 
we hate the sin but love the sinner, it can be very, it still sounds very standoffish and not welcoming to those who hear that. Um, kind of like saying, um, you know, if they were talking about me, like, Heidi, I love you, but I hate the fact that you're a woman. Like, that's not okay. And so I was curious to learn more about that saying and kind of the heart of what was meant by that. Well, that, that saying is, of course, not a saying found in Scripture. It, it goes back right. to, um, probably goes back to something that Augustine said, um, though it was it kind of has morphed over the years and how it's been stated. And I think it probably got its current form, actually, in the lips of Mahatma Gandhi, who actually said something oh. very, very close to that. And so I guess the, the question is whether that is you know, the kind of phrase that best captures this. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we particularly face, if you if you have someone that has struggles with alcoholism, for example, they don't mm-hmm. identify themselves ontologically with their, you know, in their being with their alcoholism. They see it as something they're struggling with. And so you have this also with people that are, you know, godly, wonderful people who love the Lord but are experiencing same-sex attraction, et cetera. And they, they are the first ones to say that this is not who they are. So one of the things that's happened in the current climate is that we have actually uh, created a climate where someone's sexual identity is their highest identity. And so sexualization has become a huge challenge in our culture where that becomes the, mm-hmm. the thing that defines who you are. And therefore, it's it feels like, I don't know what they would say, but I think from my experience that it feels like it's an attack upon someone's personhood rather than yeah yeah their their uh, their sinfulness. So uh, I'm not sure it's a helpful phrase, uh, and I'm not sure it actually captures really perfectly the biblical uh, word on it because we don't actually see ourselves uh, where where our body our, our who we are ontologically is separated from our actions. We actually see this all holistically. So we love people. You know, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love people as they are in their full embodiment, but we also call them to experience the full liberation of the kingdom. Mm-hmm, definitely. So I love it. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that it talked about a wide variety of, of things related to the body, not just one issue. So um, you talked about belief in a new way, at least for me, saying that it meant more than facts that you knew in your head. But to be a true belief, it had to be lived out in the body and worship, service, and morality. So since we're recording remotely now because of the pandemic um, and it's ha- still going on, how do you how do you see what's happening with the global pandemic intersecting with the theology of the body and how we care for others, especially right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Heidi. I, I um I think the podcast, I mean, the pandemic has really reminded us really of two things. I mean, on one hand, I think it has shown us the, the power of technology and, you know, we all have been, um, you know, connected to Zoom endlessly. And so we joke about, you know, how we we used to, um, you know, how we now we say we're, we're Zoomed out, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. And we were talking, some of my coworkers the other day, we were on Zoom talking about this, but how the catchphrase of 2020 is, you're on mute, I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. So I think on the one hand, you know, we all appreciate the, the technology to connect us in ways that, you know, we didn't think were possible in churches, of course, online and our academic programs online, et cetera. But I think all of us, you know, realize that the pandemic has also highlighted 
how deeply social we are and how much we long for personal embodiment. I mean, the very fact that we have this huge challenge to maintain six feet social distance is itself very amazing. And here's a, here's a, a virus that was unleashed in the world in a matter of weeks, it spread around the entire world, which meant that mm-hmm. the whole world was very close to one another and talking to each other and, and interacting. And the whole thing happens through personal interactions. And so it, it actually underscores the um, how social we are. And so I think in some ways, um, it, it reinforced the biblical point that we, we are embodied creatures, we're meant to be embodied. And one of the things I'm saying in the book is that the means of grace, which if your listeners don't know what that means, but for Wesley, and actually it's the larger Christian tradition, embraces the ideas that God uses certain things to convey his grace to us. We call them the means mm-hmm. of grace. So things like the, you know, the Eucharist and baptism and preaching the gospel and serving the poor, all these things are ways in which God reveals his grace to us. Well, if you think about it, every one of those things happens in and through the body. You, know, you take yeah. Eucharist with your body. You you're baptized with your in your body. You know you hear the gospel with your ears. You preach it with your mouth. You know you serve the poor with your hands and feet, etc. Everything happens with the body. So God actually uses the body to convey His grace. So if you take the body out of the picture, out of the equation, it becomes much more challenging for the church. And think about the challenges we've had especially with Eucharist, you know, in our community and around the yes. world, the church is talking, how do we, how do we give Eucharist? And so the church has had to reflect on this. And I think maybe it'll help us to see the the importance of embodiment in terms of the church's manifesting and embodying and conveying the grace of God in the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely see that. Cause as even just the people I've been talking to on for the podcast, how they're because a lot of them are pastors and leaders of some kind. So talking about how they're reimagining doing church when it's really hard right now to all be in the same building. I know, I know. And singing, yeah. singing behind mask and all of that, you know, it's just <laughs> it's really a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's really important. I guess right now to care for ourselves and our neighbors in different ways. It's just sometimes because we're uh, theological and biological beings, it's just kind of hard right now to figure out how all of that's going to work. So, no, well, I love, I mean, not to overly plug Wesley, but I think Wesley was prophetic when he at one point said that there were times when you would, um, when you couldn't engage in the Eucharist or baptism, there were times you may not be able to, to experience the means of grace and, which what we're experiencing now. And he, he believed that when that happened, the church would actually go to and discover new places that we have neglected. So for example, um, times of prayer and meditation, um, you know, Pascal famously said that, you know, all the world's problems can be reduced to the inability of a man to sit alone in the room. I think that in some ways it's not true. You know, we, we, we get ourselves alone in a room and we don't know what to do with ourselves. And we've been so right. distracted and we have our devices and we have all these things. And so in some ways, the idea of being, uh, you know, under, um, you know, in your homes for extended period of time, maybe people spend time, more time in prayer and meditation and discover uh, new ways of, of receiving God's grace that we've neglected in the kind of traditional ways that we see God interacting with his creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if, if your excuse was, I didn't have time to pray before, that excuse kind of got taken away with the pandemic and all of us having to stay at home. So, mm-hmm. no. yeah, definitely. So, 
going back to your book more for a little bit, it talks about sexual brokenness and the variety of issues that come from that brokenness. And you've mentioned some of these as we've talked too. So objectification of our bodies, pornography, adultery, and divorce. Um, These are some of the symptoms and behaviors from our sexual brokenness. And so often, at least in my experience from the church, we treated the behaviors and hide the problem. So if we could, let's define the problem of sexual brokenness and what's at its root. Yeah, good question, Heidi. Um, You know, the scholastics, I don't use this phrase in the book, but the scholastics had a a great phrase that I think is um, kind of captures this because it's hard to know how to put your finger on it, but they, the, the phrase yeah. is um, incavatus in se. It means the heart curved in upon itself. Oh. And, um, I think it's a really nice phrase to describe the root of sin. I, what, the, what, the phrase I use in the book is the what I call the inward gaze, where we, um, we find various forces in our culture which cause us to look inward upon ourselves. You know, so we, um, you know, people that are single, you know, don't they, they complain about marriage because they're not married or whatever, not realizing they themselves are the are the are the children of a marriage or whatever. We we tend to think about things in relation to ourselves. And so part of the sexual brokenness is rooted in that inward gaze. I've, I've sometimes I've defined sin as the um, you know, sin is the absence of God in our lives. You know, sin is all those places where we exchange the presence of God for his absence and the place of sin is where we, we actually insist on God's absence in that place. And so in that sense, I think sexual brokenness is, uh, and you're right, it's a huge spectrum. We, we, we often focus on one or two points along the way because people are wanting to um, you know, take them off the sin list. But the sin, <laughs> sexual brokenness is really vast, and it's all related ultimately to sin. And the, the, that being curved inward upon yourself and that inward gaze and inability to, you know, allow God to bring us out from ourselves to embrace all that he has for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, shame that goes along when we talk about our bodies. So um, as I was preparing for the interview, I was thinking about the purity culture and um, some of the the literature that went along with that, like I kiss dating goodbye and, and some other things. And so it seemed like... Um, sex was definitely wrong until you got married and then the switch switch flipped and it was all okay. And as I've talked to some of my friends, as we've grown up, gotten married and gotten older, um, just talking about the shame that they felt um, when after, even after they got married and sex was a permissible and normal and beautiful expression of their relationship with their husband. So I want to talk about that for a little bit and I guess start off with asking why why there's so much shame associated with our bodies and with sex. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I didn't have that experience because I my um, I think in many ways I guess my experience um, is more unusual today because the statistics at least show that a lot of uh, even Christian couples engage in sexual activity prior to marriage. It's, it's very normal. And so it creates yeah. all these challenges. And so in my case, um, my wife and I both, you know, were, um, were sexually pure on the night of our ma- wedding. And we, we didn't, we felt a sense of liberation and joy. We didn't have that shame. Uh, but I, I recognize that people do. So I guess I wonder, um, I, this is my hunch. I really don't know the source is a good question, but I think probably it's because of the 
the way that um, the body is portrayed, mostly in media and videos and so forth. I think there's there's been statistics done on like how many thousands of images are portrayed to people uh, as they grow up. Even if you personally were sexually pure, you've probably been exposed to a lot of sexual activity in films and videos, et cetera. And, and of course, you know, billboards, advertisements, and so forth, which degrade and what I call in the book, the disincarnation of the body. And especially where mm-hmm. women, we, there, there's no question that those images are, create shame. And so when a young girl is in the line in the grocery store and she sees like a glamour magazine and with a, a particular portrayal of a body on the front cover, she thinks to herself, you know, I should look like that. And so it starts very, very early. We know that. And and it creates a sense of shame. And so part of the um, recognition, I'm, I'm not sure about the culture, about I taste, kiss, dating, goodbye, that whole dynamic. But I do think that maybe we haven't taken into consideration the, the depth of um, people's exposure to shameful images prior to marriage. Oh, I see. You know, even if they themselves, you know, did not engage in sexual activity, They've been exposed to so many images which have disincarnated the human body and ripped people from their the image of God and their inner life, and they just portrayed as a body. So you have women being portrayed, you know, to sell hamburgers or sell cars or whatever in ways that are very destructive. And so I spent a whole chapter in the book just looking at that problem of how our, our media, and I don't think the church, at least in my experience, the church has not really addressed uh, adequately, at least, the um, the, the exposure of these images to our children and, and as we grow up and how that affects us. And so that mm-hmm. may be, you know, part of it. It's a, it's a mystery actually how all these um, shameful and other things happen in our lives. But it, it's certainly a deep concern we have is to, to restore the, the, you know, the proper view of sexuality in the church and in the world. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And as we think about our children growing up in the church and wanting to recover a holistic and healthy view of sexuality in all arenas, how would you recommend talking to children and leading families when it comes to this topic? Well, that's what I think the millennial generation and the X and, you know, the uh, on down the line, I think the one of the differences between your generation and if you go back to... Um, you know, my generation, boomers, or before that, the builder generation, we were told, and we weren't told explicitly, but we, I think we were, we learned, you know, don't talk about these things. Don't ever bring it up, you know, and hopefully people will just catch the right, you know, idea through just growing up in the home and all that. Those days are right. on, right? And so right. I think uh, I like the fact that, that um, and I love this just being exposed to Asbarians. I mean, one of the privileges of being in my role is that uh, in all my life in academia is that basically my whole life has been spent with people mostly in their mid twenties to early thirties. Uh, and, and I get older every year, but they, they keep coming in at the same age. <laughs> you, you can observe um, cultures and how they're different. And I think uh, the younger culture, younger generations are much more open about discussing things, talking about things. And I think they'd be probably much more willing to have these frank conversations with their children about the challenges of sexuality and what it means to go through puberty and, you know, those kind of talks that sometimes were neglected, I think today will be more, more public and more open in the, in the home. So I really have, 
I'm encouraged by that. And I think that part, part of the book lays out obviously what the church should do, but the, the church yeah. is only part of it. And so we have to have a dual strategy that on the one hand, the church has to take on a much better uh, catechesis approach to training people, but also the, the home. A lot of this has to happen in the home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about the catechesis or you can tell me if this is not a fair definition, but kind of I think of catechesis as like training and discipleship of those who are in the church or in the home. Um, What role does the church have in training up a new generation? Yeah, it's a really important question, Heidi. And uh, the the Wesleyan vision, of course, that's part of what distinguishes our movement is the, the, the strong emphasis on discipleship. And, of course, it's what's supposed to be true for all churches. And I think uh, in the past, when you had a, uh, a what was at least perceived to be a more Christianized culture, people let allowed the cultural milieu to kind of shape, form people, but that's no longer possible today. So we have to be much more intentional about our um, commitment to discipleship and training. And so some of the models of the church, which basically um, just people brought in the church and they're, they're never trained, they're never given a Christian worldview, never they don't know really what Christians actually believe. This has been proven that will not pass down to the next generation. It's not an effective um, way to propagate the faith. So what I call for in the book is a, a rediscovery, a recovery of catechesis. And um, the church traditionally you know, had certain... Um, pathways they used to catechize people. And it was mostly around uh, using the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. But I show how we can weave into even that format um, a lot of greater, all the seven components of my theology of the body can be woven into a church's um, normal discipleship, or you could do it as a separate um, kind of training. But I think it'd be a big mistake today for the church to neglect this and not help young people as they come into the church and they get baptized to understand uh, the Christian view of the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. One of the things that I also enjoyed about your book was at the beginning where you talked about the famous fresco, uh, the creation of Adam that was painted by Michelangelo. And I wanted just to give you a chance to talk about that image and why you love it and what it kind of shows us today as we're talking about and developing a theology of the body. Oh yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. It's a, one of my favorite images. I think it's the most uh, reproduced image in Christian art. I mean, it's a, it's a very well-known image and if people, even they don't know the whole Sistine Chapel, which of course has hundreds of, uh, of uh, paintings on it. Uh, that's the one they know the most. Um, Mm-hmm. Michelangelo painted it, um, you know, from 1508, 1512. He, he was a sculptor, not a painter. So this was a, a new challenge for him. And that particular painting of the creation of Adam is iconic because it, it, it captures the uh, the very moment when uh, God creates Adam and bestows his image upon him. So the way the whole thing is arranged, you have the, you know, the angels looking on to the holy mystery and this, you know, this wonderful kind of moment in, in the history of the world. And it's, um, it's, it's just very, to me, a very uh, powerful capturing of uh, the, imago, the image of God being, being conveyed and what it meant. And Adam is there like, in his full embodiment. I mean, he's there just, you know, his whole body is just laid out there. And again, it reinforces that creation is good. And this is a, a beautiful thing. So it's, um, 
it's very, very powerful. And I've, I've, I've always been very interested in Christian art. And I, you know, that uh, if you go to the British Museum, there are probably two thirds of the paintings are of a biblical theme. And there's a long tradition of Christians in art. And um, I, uh, I just, I love the art. I was actually preaching um, once some years ago and on the radio. And I, I preached about, I mentioned that just the role of Christians in art and part of the book I uh, try to bring out the, the need to recover Christian art. But anyway, I, I mm-hmm. mentioned that I'd seen, um, you know, I, I mean, just almost every scene of Jesus' life um, portrayed in art. And I said, but, you know, there's one scene in the ministry of Jesus I've never seen in any piece of artwork anywhere. Uh, and I've been to dozens of museums. And um, yeah. it was that moment where Jesus, in Mark 7, where Jesus sticks his fingers into the man's ears. Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah. And so, and he tells him, you know, uh, be open. And he and, and the church had used that to, to symbolize, you know, being open to hear the gospel. It's a, it's a great moment in the ministry of Christ. And so, I just mentioned that kind of in passing a sermon that no one I'd never seen that in art. And about a number of months later, I received a package in the mail. I couldn't believe it. I opened it up, and it was a beautiful um, charcoal painting, a rendition wow. of that moment. In the ministry of Christ, and it was sent to me by a, a man that was incarcerated in prison in Connecticut, and he had wow. heard isn't it amazing. He had heard the the sermon on the radio, and he decided to to do that depiction. He sent it to me, and I, it was just, it just I just treasured it because it's just a great moment of again of embodiment of Jesus reaching out and touching somebody. You know, he didn't just speak the word and say be healed. He, he grabbed them and touched them and. That's so much a part of the ministry of Christ, uh, how God touches us. And that that's captured yes. in the Sistine Chapel right there, how God reaches it. And as you know, the moment, the, the focal point, and I, I've been to the Sistine Chapel and seen it in person. This is the place where they, the popes were elected, et cetera. It's a very sacred place. And when you go into that chapel, the Vatican museums are enormous. I mean, they're just enormous. And you can just spend a lifetime in there. But the Sistine Chapel is actually quite small. And so when you get to that point in the museums, it's actually quite full of people usually when you get there. And they mm-hmm. that's the only museum in the Vatican where you're not allowed to speak. You have to enter into it in silence. So here's oh, wow. the room of probably, you know, it's got it's probably filled with a hundred people easily or more. And everyone is in silence and they're all looking up at that moment when God touches Adam. It, it's really, really powerful. And I, I think it wow. really symbolizes the, the book. And if you haven't ever been to to Rome, um, put it on your bucket list because the Sistine Chapel is well worth seeing. I'm writing it down right now because <laughs> we definitely want to do some traveling when, when it's safer to do so. So definitely want to go there. And my husband is he's an artist, so he would really appreciate that too. That's great. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to talking. And one of the things I've said this many times as we've talked, but I really appreciated how your book talked about the various places and ways that our theology of the body gets played out. And it's really everywhere um, in roles in areas that I hadn't even thought about that our bodies were um, a part of that. And so I thought that was really cool. Um but we talk uh, you talk about singleness, so I want to spend some moments talking about singleness and what it means. Um, 
I think sometimes, at least from my experience, so I'm not speaking for everybody, um, that we've kind of maybe made an idol out of being in a relationship or at least held it in a higher esteem than being single. And so I really appreciated what your book said about putting them on more equal playing field. But then also from what I got that you're, you were esteeming the life of celibacy and the life of singleness, maybe a little bit more than the life of marriage. I don't know. Is that a a fair take? Well, yeah, just back to your original question. I think the, um, the first thing to say is the word sing, the, the, the word singleness is of course never found in scripture. And that, that itself is part of the problem. And so one of the things I try to do is to, to capture new language because in the new Testament and building on the old, uh, singleness is actually what I would call the single focused life. And so I try to recover again, this whole book of recovery, but recovering um, really the two meanings of the body. And uh, the first meaning is what the earlier chapters deal with, which we call the um, the spousal meaning of the body, that what it means to be a spouse mm-hmm. and the whole you know, recovery of marriage, et cetera, and childbearing, all that's wonderful. But there's the second meaning of the body, and that's the one that you're raising, which I think is so crucial, which is the celibate meaning of the body, and that God has called certain people to embody uh, the future eschaton. And of course, as you know, in heaven, uh, in the new creation, there is no marriage in heaven. So mm-hmm. what I argue is that the um, you know the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're married to Christ, and in, in the traditional vision, and, and I bring out Augustine's writings where he has a, a book on uh, a marriage as well as on, on the, the single life, but he talks a lot about the, the power of the single life where you're, you're celibate, you, you're portraying the future mystery of being married to Christ already in the present. And so mm-hmm. it's a very powerful thing, and I, and I argue in the book, of course, that, and this goes to your question, which one is more important, that, that of course, that the, uh, a married person is supposed to be celibate prior to marriage. And then Paul talks about being celibate in the midst of marriage, where a husband and wife would agree for periods of reflection and prayer to uh, not engage in, um, in normal spousal life together. And then there, after your spouse dies, you're back into a point of, so actually the, the, the single life or the single focused life actually punctuates all of our lives. And we're all headed to that. that that's the future state we're all headed to. And of course, the marriage frames the whole Bible, you know, the the Bible starts out with a marriage in the Garden of Eden and it ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're married to Christ. And so I really try to bring out, you know, the power of the celibate life and what it's meant to embody, especially in a sexualized world that we're in, where we we really Mm -hmm. need to recover the power of the the single-focused life. And um, I think most Protestants, at least, um, have associated that with the Roman Catholics and Mm-hmm. The monastic communities, et cetera. But uh, in fact, it's a much broader um, embodiment. And there's now, of course, there's all these new Protestant monasteries that are emerging around the world. And there's also just the reality of living the, uh, the single-focused life where you're in, uh, in community. And a lot of churches don't really have the, haven't developed properly the kind of capacities to bring people together uh, and they're not in, you know, they have all kinds of programming for married family, married couples, et cetera, but not as much for singles except for like, oh, a single group so that you might meet someone and get married, right? Right, right. They <laughs> have the, you know, the, the, the real valuing of, the, of that single-focused life. And the church traditionally actually held both of these in very high esteem. And if anything, regarded the um, person that lived in celibate life as a person who had already 
you know, had this eschatological um, experience of realizing the, the future state to which we're all headed. So I try to really bring that out. And I, I think it's connected a lot to the loss of friendships. And I, I did a lot of study on what's happened with friendships in the, um, especially, you know, after puberty, there's a huge drop off in same gendered friendships across our country. And so it's a real mm-hmm. concern because people, uh, they interview young people and they're, they're, they're saying that if they maintain friendships of the same gender, then people assume that they're homosexual. And so they, they, again, the sexualization of friendships has actually served to help destroy friendships. And, um, Whenever we've had uh, students at the seminary that um, have had same-sex attraction, one of the things that they have taught us that we've highlighted from time to time in chapel is the their rediscovery of the power of same-gendered friendships that they had that they were longing for, and so that's been something I think has been very uh, helpful to bring out and to hopefully part of the recovery that this book is trying to point to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. How, how do you think the church can make space for single individuals? Well, they just have to first value it and see the, the, the role of it and, and not uh, assume that uh, everyone is called into the married state and therefore to create uh, avenues for same-gendered friendships and, and new kinds of community gatherings and, and uh, embodiments that are very meaningful to people. So I think it's just a way of churches looking at their programming, looking at the way they do it, and in the past, I think churches were much smaller, and therefore it was more natural to you know to have those kind of friendship mm-hmm. connections. But a lot of people who go to large churches, they go there. There may be a thousand people there, but they feel alone. They feel lonely there, and so part of the um, the whole social mm-hmm. media dynamic mm-hmm. partly has been the, um, the the rise of loneliness in our culture. So it is actually not connected to this issue alone. It's a larger issue of how people feel a sense of belonging in in any culture and how we create spaces that uh, convey belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I liked how you unpacked the, the saying blood is thicker than water. And I'd never heard the, the actual meaning where the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And I just think that's beautiful and kind of speaks to the fact and the importance of intimate friendships to our health and wholeness. So I know it's amazing that that phrase originally intended to underscore the power of friendships, which were very powerful in the Roman world. And then uh, it's today become a a way of um, defending that your, your family connections override everything else. So the the phrase is completely flipped uh, in the modern world. Yeah. Why are these intimate friendships and like deep friendships so important to maintain? Well, because it's part of the uh, part of the nexus of what it meant, what it means to be in relationship. So God, um, you know, part of the image of God we discussed at the outcast at the beginning of the podcast was part of the image of God is that we're called we're relational beings. We're called to be related one to another. Mm-hmm. So part of, uh, I think, the, the satanic kind of uh, strategy is to separate people and to create, that's part of this, your heart curved in on itself, is to create people that are yes. in isolation and feeling lonely. So part of the gospel is to, to reestablish all of the avenues of relationships. So it's not just, you know, you and God, and that's part of the whole individualization of, of the faith, which is swept across the Western world, which is it's not actually a biblical vision. It's actually multifaceted that we are connected to to God we're connected to one another 
And so we have to recover all these pathways of, of intimate relationships in order to really recover the full meaning of what it means to be in the body of Christ, because the, the body is related one to another, not simply to the head. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as you say, our bodies are mobile temples that sacramentally represent God in the world. And so how do we live sacramentally in real life, in our social, on our social media pages, and especially in an election year? <laughs> well, election year, who knows? <laughs> right. Off. Right, who knows? Um, yeah, I, I do bring out one of the chapters on the sacramental meaning of the body, and I, I devote actually two chapters uh, to various themes of that. And one of them is the idea that I think we view the sacrament, um, if we'll say you take the Eucharist, we have viewed it too much as simply the place where God you know, conveys His grace to you personally, where you receive forgiveness, etc., rather than you being transformed into the broken bread to the world. And so I really bring out the fact that we're actually, the, the sacrament has two sides to it. One is what happens between you and God, but also what happens between you and your neighbor and even into the world. So I bring out that aspect of the sacraments, but then I also have a whole chapter just on what it means to live daily life. And I, I, I jokingly say that the uh, at one point in the book, I say that you know the book begins with the... Um, this, you know, stunning creation of us, an image of God, and, you know, the Sistine Chapel, this lofty image of the, of this, you know, sublime uh, truth, and it ends with um, changing diapers, you know, or, or whatever, just <laughs> daily life, washing dishes, mowing the grass. So I have a whole chapter looking at what's called the Quotidian Mysteries, the, uh, the daily mysteries of life where, you know, we all get up and there's certain things we do every day. You know, we, we mm-hmm. make the bed, we wash the dishes, we wash clothes, we we, we cut the lawn or whatever. There, there's things that we do regularly in our lives that are, we don't really realize the sacramental side of that, that that's part of our embodiment is doing these daily tasks. And so we view them as meaningless or we, we you know, if we have mm-hmm. money, we pay somebody else to do them. And I, I try to, part of the book is to reestablish the, the power of, uh, of the daily living and what it means to, um, to be embodied creatures and all the daily things that we do. And so, Part of that is, uh, you know, the repetition is, of course, sacramental. We associate repetition with sacraments, but this is one of the most repetitious things we do is all our daily tasks. And so I, I really try to re, um, re-enliven that aspect and uh, to not divide our life between sacred and secular so that, you know, you you think, well, I'm doing something, you know, spiritual when I go to church or when I get in the morning, have my quiet time and read the Bible and then you go out into the world and to the secular world. That's a modern, you know, bifurcated, dichotomized world that's not part of the biblical vision. So instead, seeing God's presence in the whole of life is a big crucial part of the book's vision to see what it means for us to be the embodied creatures, not simply when we take the sacrament, but when we make the bed in the morning, when we do the normal things of life that, um, I don't know if you get every morning, make your bed up in the morning, Heidi, but uh, my husband does that. So <laughs> yes, one of us does that. People never do it at all, you know, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But you know, things have to be done. You have to wash dishes, you have to cut grass, you have to do these things. And so part of it is uh, men and women both are involved in all of these kind of daily tasks. And there've been some great books written in recent years on this you know, a Christian view of normal life. And if, if you know the church year, you'll know that the church year is, um, you know, divided into, you know, from Lent all the way through to Pentecost, all these wonderful seasons, but it only goes, you know, from 
the four weeks for Christmas till around June when Pentecost happens. And then the rest of the year is called ordinary time. And what I argue is that the church actually divided the, the, uh, the church year between a half of the year where we remember the grand themes of redemption and the other half of the year where we remember what it's like to live as Christians in ordinary life. And so that's, Oh, wow. That is something that I think we've lost. Yeah, that's beautiful. I never I never really thought about it that way before. That's lovely. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so Dr. Tennant, we've covered a great many things in our conversation today and I've really enjoyed them. And we have one question that we ask everybody who comes on the show. But before we do, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't already talked about? No, it's been a joy to talk with you, Heidi, and um, I hope that we do recapture some more of the mystery of what it means to be embodied. And I, if, we, if, that, if that comes of, comes across this podcast, just to think better about the body, then we'll have achieved uh, our goal. Yes, for sure. So now for the last question. Because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary Podcast, what is one practice, it can be spiritual or otherwise, that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Well, besides doing the dishes every day, um, <laughs> I, um, I don't know if you know this, Heidi, but in 2012, my wife, Julie, who is uh, just a wonderful delight. And by the way, this um, book that I've written, I've dedicated to Julie with the phrase, uh-huh. um, uh, to Julie, how wonderful it is to be married to you. And so I, I'm so thankful for um, her partnership in the gospel and so I came to Asbury in 2009, I, I realized I was facing uh, many new spiritual challenges in my life, and I, I realized I needed to go deeper and find new reservoirs to better serve Asbury as its leader, because I, I was given um, responsibilities and challenges that were new in my life. And um, I, I was so happy because in some ways, when I was an early young Christian, I, you know, like a lot of Christians, you know, you grow by leaps and bounds, you know, in the first 10 years of your Christian life. But then there's times where you feel like you're just kind of like maintaining or just kind of holding ground. And I didn't feel like I really mm-hmm. could, had, could take, you know, can you really continue to grow and deepen in, in more dramatic ways when you've been a Christian for 30, 40 years? And so in 2012, we decided to um, give every morning and spend time in the morning singing psalms together before we had our normal Bible study and prayer time. And so we did that. Uh, we started that in 2012. And we have done that every morning since 2012 to the present. Wow, so that's I, beautiful. It's amazing. So even if I'm on the road or traveling, um, we call on the phone and we do it over the phone. We just never miss. And so it's been a real um, great thing for us. And you may know that we've, we eventually put out our own uh, metrical salter, but we we found that uh, singing metrical psalms has been a, a wonderful way for us to thrive and to grow, and it's been a great gift to us, and it's helped me to um, hopefully help me be better servant of the ministry of Asbury. Yeah, I love that, Dr. Tennant. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate you and this conversation. Thank you, Heidi. It's been a pleasure. Hey friends, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Tennant. There is so much that we can learn from today's conversation. I know I learned some things and I hope you did as well. 
And make sure, if you haven't already, Dr. Tennant's book is available for pre-order. It releases on October 27th. And if you haven't already, make sure you grab a copy of that. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. So thanks for listening and go do something that helps you thrive.